Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Now that we've looked at many of the kingdom texts from the Old Testament, today we'll get into the New Testament and see what Jesus and the apostles taught about the kingdom. We'll examine the titles of Jesus, a couple of his parables, some texts from Paul and James, and then finish up with Revelation. In this lecture, we'll restrict our focus to just those verses that speak of the kingdom as future. We'll come back to the other kingdom scriptures in the New Testament in subsequent lectures. This is Lecture 5 of the Kingdom of God class, originally taught at the Atlanta Bible College. To take this class for credit, please contact ABC so you can do the work necessary for grade. Here now is Podcast 89, Kingdom in the New Testament. Lecture number 5, The Coming Kingdom in the New Testament. My goal here is to cruise through the New Testament and look at texts pertaining to the coming kingdom from Matthew to Revelation. I'm not going to hit every one, but I'm going to hit a bunch of them. And the goal here is not to focus on the verses that relate to the gospel message of the kingdom or verses that talk about how Jesus embodied the kingdom in his ministry. Those are for a different time. Okay, so I'm just focusing on verses that relate to the future kingdom. But before we do that, we have to define these words here. Messiah is the first one up. And then Son of Man, Son of David, and Son of God. These are titles that Jesus either uses himself or that people use of him. And we want to look at some verses related to to each one of these. So the first one, the term Messiah or Christ, we want to look at Mark 15, 32. And then on the Son of Man... We already looked at this one, Daniel 7, 13 to 14, last time. So I don't think we'll, we'll look at that. But you can go ahead and flip to Mark 15 right now. And then on Son of David, I've got a few. Matthew 21, 9, Mark 11, 9 through 10, Luke 19, 38, and John 12, 13. You'll see why I have one from each gospel once we get to it. And then Son of God is... John 1.49 and Luke 1.35. So why do I want to start with these titles? Because you see them all over the New Testament. And if you don't understand the kingdom relevance of these titles, you, you lose out a lot of the flavor of what's actually going on here in their world. So Mark 15.32 says, Let the Christ... This is at the crucifixion of Jesus. It says, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Do you see what they did there? Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who crucified him also reviled him. So we call this in a positive in English, (laughs) where you say, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down. And so what we see here is that Messiah or Christ is the same as saying King of Israel. Or if you want to get a little bit fancier with it, you could say it's the one God anointed King. The word Messiah, I'm sure you know, is related to the word for anoint, right? To anoint someone. And so in their culture, they would pour actual oil on someone's head and anoint them to be the king or the prophet or the priest. And so Jesus is Messiah, is Christ, and what that means is that he's the king of Israel or the one God has anointed king. On Son of Man, we don't have to look at that because we already looked at that last time, but Son of Man is the one that receives the kingdom so that all the people would serve and obey him, and it's an everlasting kingdom, right? You have dominion, you have over all people, and it lasts forever. And that's all tied up in this phrase, Son of Man. Now, what's interesting about the phrase Son of Man is it can also just mean a human being. In fact, most 
references, if you look up the phrase son of man in the Old Testament, most references, that's just what it means. It just means a human being. All right? So, for example, the greatest cluster of references to the son of man in the Old Testament is in the book of Ezekiel. God calls Ezekiel son of man all over the place. He said, son of man, can these bones live? Oh, Lord, you know. Right? He just calls him son of man over and over and over again. And it doesn't mean the one that God is, the ancient of days, is going to give the kingdom to. It just means a human being. Look, if you're a son of a man, then you are a man. Or if you're a daughter of a man, then you are a, a, not a man, but a human, right? A woman. <laughs> so son of man is a phrase that can either mean just a human being or the one in Daniel's vision who receives the kingdom and reigns forever. And what's so cool about how Jesus uses this is that he leaves it up to the hearer to decide. Is this guy just being humble? He's like, yeah, I'm the son of man. I'm just, I'm just another mortal human being. Or is he claiming to be the one in the vision? <laughs> and, he, and he leaves that with people to decide. So I'll give you another text on son of man. So this is like in the sense that Jesus meant it, but also in the sense of just like a regular human being. Numbers 23, 19 is a good text for that. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Numbers 23, 19. Good memory verse. So, son of man can either just be a human being, right? Did you, did you hear what I said there? God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Using these two phrases interchangeably. And what, is it, what is Numbers 23, 19 saying? It's saying God is not a human being, right? Neither is he a son of man. Son of man is a human being, in other words, okay? And so Jesus is a son of man. And then we have son of David. Let me show these to you. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Does anybody know what this is talking about? What's it talking about? When Jesus was entering Jerusalem. Yeah, when he's entering Jerusalem, right? So they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. It's interesting, isn't it? That phrase, that title, son of David. What, what could that possibly mean? His genealogy is from David. Yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the least of what it means. But the, the uh, greatest of what it means is even more exciting than that. Uh, but that's certainly part of it. Hosanna in the highest, right? So that's Matthew 21, 9. So we saw there, it says, Hosanna to the son of David. What's the next verse? Mark 11, 9 through 10. Okay, Mark 11 says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? So in the one case, we had son of David. In the next case, we had the one coming in the name of the Lord, right? And then... The next line, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And then the third one, we take it from Luke chapter 19, verse 38, which says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Well, that wasn't that exciting. Oh, yes, it was. King! I don't know how I missed that. <laughs> king! That's a big word when you get executed for claiming to be king. And then the fourth one is John 12, 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Right? And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, and so on. So in the cry of the people during the triumphal entry, what we see is them calling him the son of David. They're calling him the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They call him king. They call him king of Israel. What is son of David other than the promised descendant to rule on the throne of David over Israel? The one we talked about when we, we looked at the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants, the one who is going to fulfill what the angel Gabriel said, right? That you're going to have a son, he's going to be called great, and he's going to sit on the throne of David and rule over Jacob forever. That's what son of David means. Now, Anna's right. Son of David also could just mean you're a descendant of David. So once again, there is a, a, an ambiguity here with each of these where 
Son of man can either mean just a human being or the one that's going to receive the kingdom. Son of David can mean just a descendant of David or the son of David who is going to fulfill the Davidic covenant and rule over the kingdom on David's throne. And then the last of all, son of God, once again, it has two meanings. It has two meanings. The first meaning we look at in John 1.49, which says, is Nathaniel. And he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Right? And so once again, Son of God is very much interchangeable with, with all of these other ones in the sense that it refers to a king or a Messiah or Christ. That Son of God is the one that God puts on the throne. Significant two Old Testament uh, prophecies about this. Do you, do you know what they are about Son of God? One of them we already read, 2 Samuel 7.14. 2 times 7 is 14. Right? 2 Samuel 7.14, which is the, the one that talks about how when David dies, one of his descendants is going to sit on the throne. And then, I don't remember what verse is, like 15 or 16, he says, I will be his father and he will be my son. And if God says, you will be my son, then you are the son of God. Right? So, son of God is said of the son of David in 2 Samuel. Right, and the other one is Psalm two seven. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that one or not, but uh, it says, "I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel." Right. So this is the other son of God prophecy from the Old Testament. So. Uh, when it comes to looking at Jesus, you have Psalm 2-7 and 2 Samuel 7, 14-16. Both of these are in the background of what it means to be the Son of God, right? It's the one that God's put in charge of the world, right? And he's going to be a father to him, he's going to be a son. Uh, Nathaniel just interchanges it with the term king of Israel, in John 1.49. But then there's a second meaning of Son of God. It's a literal meaning. And that is that God's biologically, if we could put it that way, His Father. And that's Luke 1.35. Right? Luke 1.35 says, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Right? And so, why is the child called the Son of God, it's because the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. In other words, because this child is not born of a human father, but God is literally the child's father, therefore the child is called the Son of God. So there are really two senses. There's the sense of authority, of like being the king, that sense of Son of God, but then there's also the fact that God's actually his father. Any thoughts on that? Did you, was that a hand raise? Yeah. A stretch? What was that? Uh, well, in Genesis 2, 6, it calls angels sons of God. Genesis 2, 6? 6, 2, maybe. 6, 2, sorry. Okay, 6, 2. Yeah, I'll go with you there. Yeah. B'nai ha'alohim. So, there are five usages of sons of God, that phrase, in the Old Testament. They all refer to angels, but Son of God does not necessarily. So, I mean, you just have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis. And in the New Testament especially, like, Son of God can just be like a Christian. <laughs> There's a big difference between one and plural. Yeah. And that's the difference in Yeah, and if you think about it, who made the angels? Right? Do, do angels reproduce and produce more angels? Or does God just make the angels? I mean, if, I don't know. I'm just saying, like, if God just makes the angels then they are literally sons of God in the sense that God created them, God brought them into existence in the same sense that Jesus is the son of God like that. That's enough on those titles. Yeah? Adam was son of God. Yeah, you, we have that at the end of uh, Luke 3. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Adam is the son of God as well. Yeah. That's a good connection you make there. So anyhow, my, my point about starting by looking at these titles here, is to make the point to you that, yeah, each of these has a different nuance, 
this ties into the old kings of Israel that were anointed with oil. That's what Messiah means, right? Uh, Son of man ties into Daniel's vision. Son of David ties into Nathan's prophecy to David that he's going to have a son to sit on the throne. And Son of God ties into, uh, very similarly, the Son of David, as well as this biological idea. But regardless, these four titles, even though they are distinct from each other and they have different nuances, they really are all, all are more or less saying the same thing, that Jesus is the one that's going to rule on the age to come. And so that was basically the point I wanted to make here, is that even the very titles that Jesus goes by testify to the coming kingdom. That it's not just like your honorable so-and-so. No, they call him son of David. I mean, that's, that's a specific title for a specific thing. So, all right, let's look at some kingdom references in the New Testament. First up, I want to take a look at Matthew 5, 5. Does anybody want to say it from memory? Closer than the meek for this show, Aaron Beard. Excellent, Talon. Closer than the gentle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the meek or the gentle, right, or the humble. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth, Matthew 5, 5. In the verse... Before it, it says, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. In the verse before that, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we get the impression that kingdom of heaven and comfort and inheriting the earth are all rewards for God's people. Now, I mentioned to you before that the phrase kingdom of heaven, let me just show it to you so you can see it yourself. Kingdom of heaven shows up, well, you probably can't see this, but I'm just going to read it out loud anyhow. There are 32 hits for the kingdom of heaven in 31 verses. And you can see the first one's Matthew 3, 2, and the last one's Matthew 25, verse 1. So in other words, the kingdom of heaven phrase shows up 32 times all in the gospel of Matthew. So you have a couple of options. Either Matthew is talking about something totally different than Mark, Luke, John, Paul, James, and everyone else that talks about the kingdom of God. Or he's talking about the same thing, just using different words. And the verses we easily can use to establish that it's the same thing is Matthew 19, 23 and 24. Because in Matthew 19, 23, Jesus says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in Matthew 19, 24, he says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. All right, so there you have it, even in Matthew, where it's clearly interchanging between these two phrases. Does that make sense? So in other words, I'm saying, and this is not my invention, it's pretty typical understanding among people that, you know, New Testament scholars, that kingdom of heaven is just another way of saying kingdom of God. And it could have been because maybe Matthew felt if he said heaven, it would be more palatable to his Jewish audience. Or maybe he wanted to emphasize that it comes from heaven. Or maybe he had Daniel 2.44 in his head. And that's kingdom of, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. We don't really know why he did this. We just know that he did this. And that he didn't mean anything different than kingdom of God when he said kingdom of heaven. Some people sometimes think kingdom of heaven means that's not what he's saying. Okay, It's the kingdom from heaven or the same thing as the kingdom of God. So anyhow, back to Matthew 5.5. 5. It says... Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I have an amazing quote for you on this verse from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Has anybody ever heard of him? You have? Yeah. Fascinating guy. They, this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Just kidding. They, the meek, show by every word and gesture that they do not belong to this earth. So he, he starts off saying, Meek don't really belong here. Leave heaven to them, says the world in his pity. That is where they belong. But Jesus says they shall inherit the earth. To these, the powerless and the disenfranchised, the very earth belongs. Those who now possess it by violence and injustice shall lose it. Of course, he's writing just before the Nazi regime takes over and starts initiating uh, genocide. Those who now possess it by violence and injustice shall lose it. And those who have utterly renounced it, who were meek to the point of the cross, shall rule the new earth. That's beautiful. God does not forsake the earth. He made it. He sent his son to it. And on it, he built his church. 
right? God does not forsake the earth. So that's from the cost of discipleship. A great quote there. So we have Matthew 5, 5. Then we have the uh, very famous Lord's Prayer, right? Matthew 6, 10, uh, where it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We look at the second half first about his will being done. And we ask the question, is God's will being done on earth right now? In some ways, right? Among the church, hopefully, on a good day, right? But in the world at large, there's a lot of what happens that is not actually God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're going to have to go ahead and say that this part of it here, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's future. And if that's future your kingdom come is also future. I mean, look, if you're praying for something to come, it's not already here. If you're praying for lunch to come because you're hungry right now, it's not already here. (laughs) So your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is a nifty one sentence definition of what the kingdom of God is. And I love this one because I I live and work and play with Catholics, mostly post-Catholics, but they all know the Lord's Prayer. This is an easy way, if, if somebody comes from any kind of a Catholic background, to get at the kingdom. Be like, yeah, you know the, you know the Our Father, they call it the Our Father. Uh, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, if they're old school, or your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the definition of the kingdom. The kingdom is when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. A beautiful, simple definition. And it's very easy to, to talk to people about that. The other verse I wanted to look at was the one that used this awesome Greek word, palingenesia, uh, which is Matthew 19, 27 to 29. Again, I'm not looking at every single kingdom verse. I'm just looking at kingdom verses that relate to the future coming of the kingdom. So we have Matthew 5, 5, and we have Matthew 6, 10, and now we're looking at 19, 27 to 29. 27, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. I mean, don't you love that? It was already so good. I got hung up on the word regeneration last time. We never made it past there. So we had to come back, right? In the regeneration, hello, that's big. Genesis, Revelation, recycling the earth, restoring everything back to what it was, spoken of by all the prophets, Acts 3.21. In the regeneration... And then it gets even better. When the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne. Hello, that's Daniel 7, 13 and 14 right there. Wouldn't you say? If He's sitting on His glorious throne, that means that He's received the kingdom from the Ancient of Days and He is now like that stone coming out of the sky, destroying the kingdom of this age and then growing to fill the whole earth. I mean, that is... Jesus, that's how He's talking. He said, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne... Well, I'm actually in verse 28. I guess I told you to go to verse 27. What does verse 27 say? Is that where Peter asks, what do we get? Here, behold, we have left everything, follow you. Yeah. But then will there be for us? Yeah, verse 27 is Peter says, what do we get out of it? We left everything, we followed you, what do we get out of it? I love, love, love that question. <laughs> I think it's, I, I love how there's like a very pious uh, kind of mentality in Christianity where you're like, oh, you shouldn't like care about rewards or anything. Right, yeah. And Peter's like, hey man. What do we get out of this? And Jesus didn't scold him. He's like, I can't believe you'd ask something like that. You should do it just because you love me. He's like, hey, listen, this is- It's gonna be good. Yeah. <laughs> it's gonna be sick. Yeah, yeah. Peter's like, all right, I'm gonna go first and I wanna know what I'm gonna get out of this, right? Uh, and so he might be violating what we might consider as a, a, an ethical norm, but you know what? He's not living in our culture, so we, we, I don't think we need to judge him. And Jesus doesn't correct him, like you pointed out. Jesus says, yeah, here's the answer to your question. Truly I say to you, in the Palagonesia, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. That's exciting, right? Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he promises to his followers that they are going to sit on thrones too. Who sits on a throne? A ruler someone making decisions. Otherwise, it's just a chair, right? If it's a throne, then it has power attached to it. Verse 29, and everyone 
who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit life in the age to come or eternal life. So if I ask you what scripture do we know that Jesus promises for them to rule over 12 thrones, what would you say? 1928. All right, good. So you'll get that one right. That's what you get. Not now, but in the regeneration. Jesus promises them this a second time. This is in Luke chapter 22, verse 28. He says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. This is at the Last Supper. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus didn't even just say it once. He said it there in Matthew 19, 28, but, which was earlier, and then later on when he was at the Last Supper in Luke, what is that, 22, 28 to 30, he said it to them again. He's like, look, God has covenanted to me a kingdom. I covenant it to you. I grant it to you, and you are going to sit at my table. You're going to be my inner circle. You're going to be my cabinet. All right, so Jesus promises them twice. This is so funny. Like, well, I don't know if we'll get to this in this class. But anyhow, in Acts, I'm just going to say it because it's on my mind. In Acts 1-6, they um, ask Jesus. This is after the resurrection. They ask Jesus. They say, is this the time to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right? And the, and the commentators just go nuts. They, they're, just like, they're just like falling over themselves. Well, actually, I, I just remember. We are going to get to that later. But the commentators are like, these disciples are complete morons. How could you be so dumb as to miss what Jesus has been teaching this whole time? Where did they ever get the idea of a kingdom? Hello, Luke 22, Matthew 19, 28. That's where they got the idea of a kingdom. We'll get to that later. I'm, I'm jumping the gun here. Sometimes that happens. I've got a quote from Albert Nolan, uh, no relation to the baseball player. He is a Catholic monk in South Africa. He was part of the apartheid movement. He wrote a very, like a best-selling book called Jesus Before Christianity. And a lot of it's really good, although it does kind of just go into liberal scholarship towards the end. But he talks about the kingdom and he says, somewhere in the background behind Jesus' use of the term kingdom of God, there is a pictorial image. He speaks of people entering into the kingdom. They can sit down in it and eat and drink in it. The kingdom has a door or a gate on which one can knock. It also has keys and can be locked. The pictorial image behind this is obviously that of a house or a walled city. The fact that his way of speaking about the kingdom is based upon a pictorial image of a house, a city, or a community leaves no doubt about what he had in mind. A politically structured society of people here on earth. A kingdom is a thoroughly political notion. It is a society in which the political structure is monarchical. That is to say, it is ruled and governed by a king. Nothing that Jesus ever said would lead one to think that he might have used this term in a non-political sense. I mean, that's solid gold. I mean, that's pretty much the only reason he got crucified. If he wasn't a political anarchist, he probably wouldn't have been killed. Nothing that Jesus ever said would lead one to think he might have used this term in a non-political sense. That is absolutely solid gold. Look, I could stand up here and quote for you Dr. Joe Martin and Anthony Buzzard till the cows come home, and they're, all, and they're both going to agree with the kingdom. That's not as exciting as finding somebody from a totally different background who probably disagrees with us on everything else, and yet he's like, look, the kingdom, man, it's obvious, plain as day. Uh, nothing that Jesus ever said would lead one to think that he might have used this term in a non-political sense. Right? So that's, that's kind of why I like to quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Albert Nolan, people like that, is because they are coming from different traditions. People from our tradition are, of course, they are going to agree with us. Not that there's no time to quote them. Of course, there's a time to quote them, but uh, that's just why I'm bringing these guys on. So let's look at some parables. Now, Jesus told a lot of parables. We, we, we don't have time to go through every parable, right? But we're just going to hit some highlights here. So Matthew 13 has a bunch in it. 
and we're going to cover the parable of the tares and the wheat. That's this one right here. And then I also want to look at the dragnet, which is also in Matthew 13, and the parable of the minas, which is, I think, the one Josiah referred to a little earlier. And then lastly, the parable of the sheep and the goats. And, and just a little bit, you know, I'm not going to exposit the whole parable and go into all the details, but just look at how he talks about the kingdom in these parables. So this was, what was this one? Matthew 13, 24. Are you all there? All right. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat or tares among the wheat and went away. And when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. <laughs> Perfectly interesting little story, right? And then we get the interpretation, which is the exciting part, in verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. What, Jesus, what were you talking about? Weeds of the what was that? Enemy came, sowed the weeds. What was that? He answered, verse 37, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Now it's like light bulbs going off everywhere, right? Like, oh, okay, so the person who's sowing the good seed, that's the Son of Man, that's the Messiah, that's Jesus, right? And then who are these, these bad ones? They're, they're, they're the sons of the evil one, right? These are people that are working for the devil or, or, or doing things that are rebellious towards God. And the field is the world, so this, this is the whole world. It's not just a field, it's the whole world. And the harvest is the end of the age, right? That moment of judgment that we looked at, and I only just read a little bit from the, like Zephaniah 3, just like a little bit, we talked about indignation. and I, I could read to you wrath passage after, I mean, there's tons of them, okay? And that's the harvest here. Verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and law, all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So the tares and the wheat tell us what happens at the end of the age. So this is a parable about the end of the age. And it's talking about judgment on the wicked, right? It's, it's, it's talking about how you're going to pull them out and, and bundle them up and burn them in the fire, right? Jesus is explaining this, saying, look, the Son of Man is going to come and, and this is going to happen. There's going to be a, a division, right? This is like John the Baptist, right? You remember what John the Baptist said? He said, one is coming after me that is greater than me and I, I'm not worthy to put, put it, you know, tie his sandals or whatever. I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and separate out the wheat and the chaff. The chaff he's going to burn up with unquenchable fire, and the wheat he's going to put in his barn. Is that a little familiar to you, the John the Baptist saying? So what John the Baptist is saying there is when Jesus comes, or not Jesus, he doesn't know it's Jesus yet, but like when the Messiah comes, he comes to divide the wheat from the chaff. Here, he's coming to divide the tares from the wheat, the weeds from the wheat, right? It's this idea of judgment dividing people into two categories. There's not like this middle area where like, hey, you were a pretty decent chap and eh, you didn't believe in me really, but you also weren't that bad, so we're going to let you in too. No, there's no like middle ground ta ter uh, category. 
it's classic apocalyptic dualism. You have the tares and the wheat. You have the wheat and the chaff. That seems to be what, what he's saying here. And that's, again, it's not when people die. That judgment is not when you die. That judgment was when the Son of Man comes, which is at the harvest or the end of the age. Does that make sense? All right, Dragnet. Look down at verse 47, just a few verses later. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Same kind of idea, right? It's a little bit different because here it was the Son of Man, here it's the angels. Where Actually, was it the angels in the other one? Angels in the dirt. Sent forth his angels. 41. Okay. So, oh, so the Son of Man sends the angels, right? So Jesus is like, all right, boys, go get them. And uh, in the uh, dragnet, very similar idea, except instead of, it's also pertaining to the end of the age, right? But instead of talking about weeds and wheat, he's talking about fish, right? And, and when you, has anyone ever done that? Thrown a net and caught any fish? I've thrown a net, but I've never caught any fish. In fact, I'm probably the worst fisherman that's ever been born. If you have an enemy and your, your enemy really loves fishing, send me with that person because I will make it so they don't catch anything just by sitting there. Uh, I have that as a, 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 a spiritual talent. Um, anyhow, look at, uh, let's take a look at Luke chapter 19. Verse 11, look at this parable of the Minas. It also pertains to the, to the coming kingdom, the future kingdom. Luke 19, verse 11, talks about how they were drawing near to Jerusalem. And Jesus is a kingdom preacher. He's going around calling himself the Son of Man. And people are starting to catch on. Luke 19, is he's, he's finally getting near to Jerusalem. Where does the Son of Man rule from? Where does the Son of God rule from? Where does the Son of David rule from? Where does the Messiah rule from? He rules from Jerusalem. So he's getting near to Jerusalem, and people are starting to think the kingdom of God is going to come now. That's what it says in Luke 19.11. And they heard, what's that? I said that's why they were saying Hosanna. That's why they were saying, exactly. And they heard these things. He, said, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to, to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they gained by doing business. And it, and it goes on from there and you get the judgment aspect later on. The important point I want to look at here with you is the fact that it says he goes away to receive a kingdom and then he returns. We don't think of it like that. We look at it as the person who's carrying out the authority or carrying out the power who's actually ruling. That's inheriting the kingdom. We don't think of it as going somewhere else to receive the kingdom and then returning to establish it. At least I don't. There, this phenomenon was a reality when America was in its colonial phase. Have you ever heard of uh, William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania? Apparently the King of England owed his father some money and the king of England's like, all right, I'm gonna pay you back. I'll, I'll give you some land in the new world, right? It's not entirely clear how the king of England owns the, the new world, but he, he says he does. And so he pays back William Penn's debt by giving him Pennsylvania. Right, a big chunk of land, right? But William Penn has to actually come to America on a boat. If he dies on the boat, there's no Pennsylvania, right? He's got to survive the boat ride. He's got to get here. And then he's got to establish it. Because even though he has an authority from England, there's all these native people living in Pennsylvania. And plus other colonialists might already be 
homesteading out there or expanding out. And now he's got to establish the boundary and enforce the proclamation of the King of England. And William Penn, by the way, was just about the best at it when it come to, came to dealing with Native Americans. He established peace instead of killing them. That is the analogy here. You have Jesus who goes away, he receives the kingdom, and then he comes back to actually execute the authority that God has given him. Right. And once again, that is verse, what was that? Verse uh, 12, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Right. So it's a little bit different way of thinking about it, but that's the way Jesus wants us to think about it. And then last of all, we have the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25, verse 31. Again, I'm not treating each of these parables uh, comprehensively, I'm just looking at the king, how they talk about the kingdom a little bit. Each one of these could obviously be a whole sermon in itself, right? Matthew 25, 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You guys know what this parable is about, probably, right? The sick, the naked, the hungry, right? It's talking about taking care of people in need. I'm not going to get into all that. It's awesome. You should, you should study that. But my point is more on the top here, like verse 31. Once again, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, he's, it doesn't say that He's coming to whisk us away. It doesn't say that He's coming to skyhook us off to heaven, right? It says that He's coming. Again, His angels are coming with Him. We saw that before. And He's coming to sit, not to hover in the air, but to sit on his glorious throne. And what happens? All the nations are gathered before him. Look, that makes perfect sense. If you think of Daniel 7, 13 and 14 in the background, if you think of that vision of the Son of Man who receives the kingdom and then comes and all nations serve and obey him, right? Well, how, that, how is that going to happen? He's going to have to sit down and he's going to have to figure things out. That is where he separates the sheep and the goats, right, into two categories. And to the sheep, he says, inherit the kingdom. Look, enjoy the kingdom. It's for you. And the goats, it doesn't go so well. Not so well at all. Which really leads me into this whole next issue of language, how people talk about the kingdom. This becomes more significant when we start looking at second century kingdom Christianity. We start seeing a lot of this phrase, especially with Jesus, enter the kingdom or entrance to the kingdom right and entering the kingdom entering the kingdom is this idea that like albert nolan said the kingdom is pictured like a city with a gate and you enter into it right you you, you go into the kingdom whereas going to heaven is this idea where you just like sort of float up right or you you just go up so entering versus, versus going. So for example, if, if I type into the, the computer here, enter the kingdom, I get immediately 13 results, right? I get results in Matthew, a whole bunch of Matthew. I get some in Mark. I get some in Luke. I get one in John, and I get one in Acts, right? Pretty typical way of talking about salvation, about eternal life, entering the kingdom, right? Or enter the kingdom, either way. If I, if I type in, go to heaven, zero results. If I type in, going to heaven, zero results. If I type in, went to heaven, zero results. If I type in, enter heaven, zero results. You see my point? So the biblical way to talk about the afterlife is to talk about entering the kingdom as opposed to going to heaven. So the New Testament repeatedly, this is my point to you, the New Testament repeatedly uses the phrase enter the kingdom to describe our hope. It does not say go to heaven. It does not say float on a cloud. It does not say pass away. It does not say uh, go to be with the Lord. It just doesn't use that language. The language it uses is 
enter the kingdom. It's not the only language it uses, but it's the, the primary language it uses. So I just want to show you how this works, just a couple of these verses under the heading, enter the kingdom. I want to show you about four or five of these just ever so quickly. Matthew 18, 1 through 4 says, At the time the disciples came to Jesus say, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? See, somebody reading that might be thinking, Who's the greatest in heaven? That's not what they're saying. They're saying in the age to come, in the future kingdom, when it arrives, who will be the greatest then? Right? And calling him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? You're not even going to get in unless you become like this child. <laughs> it's one of the strong teachings of Jesus. Or we have, this, this is a verse we already looked at before, Matthew 19, 23. I'm just trying to sensitize you to, the, to the, the language here that Jesus says is difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then the next verse is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then there are a couple of others worth mentioning. Mark 9, 47 says, If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Or that's, I'm sure, the Greek word Gehenna, which is talking about that final judgment, right? Or Nicodemus, right? You remember Nicodemus? Jesus says to him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's John 3, verse 5. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Or the other one that I wanted to mention is from Acts 14.22, this is the Apostle Paul going around strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith through persecutions in this situation here, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So this is the stand, I know I'm kind of like overemphasizing this, you'll see why it becomes important later, <laughs> okay, but uh, this is the standard way of talking about it. Now let's take a look at food food. When Jesus and the people in the New Testament talk about the kingdom, they often talk about a table. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Like sitting at a table with Abraham and that, that sort of thing. So, for example, under the category of tactile language or food, we see Luke 13, 28 to 30. Jesus says, that uh, you're going to see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves cast out. And he says, this is verse 29, And people will come from the east and west and from the north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. So Jesus talks about the kingdom of God in the context of this table with Abraham and Isaac and so on. Uh, another example is in Luke 14, 15. There's somebody sitting at the table with Jesus, and that person says, when one of those who was reclining at the table heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And you notice that Jesus doesn't shut this person down and be like, what are you talking about? We're going to be polishing rainbows. No, he, like, he's okay with eating bread in the kingdom. Even if you're uh, gluten intolerant now, you can eat bread in the kingdom of God. You know, God will heal you from that uh, sad disability in that, in that day. Luke, Luke 22, 15 to 18, right here. And uh, so this is just another one that, where Jesus is talking about food and the tactile language. And this is at the Last Supper where he says, uh, I don't know if you know anything about Passover, but like for Passover, you normally have wine as part of the Jewish ceremony. Are you familiar with that? So Jesus says to them, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so in Jesus' mind, like he's going to be able to eat, and he's going to be able to drink in the kingdom of God when it comes. Again, uh, this, this might not, these two things might not seem all that exciting to you right now, but they're, they're major important topics as Christian history develops and people start attacking the kingdom. So that'll, that'll be interesting to see how, how that plays out. But Jesus has no, he has no problem with bread. He has no problem with wine. He has no problem with eating lamb or whatever you eat at a Passover dinner. Those little crackers, 
right? I mean, what, what is that called? Matzah, matzah right, yeah. He has, he has no problem with any of that, eating that in the kingdom at all. Okay, so that's just a few points on that. Why, may I ask you, was Jesus crucified? I'd say for claiming to be another king other than Caesar. Uh-huh. Well, that's kind of the push that Jewish leadership would yeah. yeah, they felt like he was a, a, a false messiah. I think to a large degree the Jewish leaders were really worried that Jesus would become popular and that he would start some sort of a movement that would cause the Romans to come kill a bunch of people, right? Which is pretty much what had happened in the past and what would happen in the future for Messianic claimants. And of course then there's the theological answer, right? Why did Jesus die? Because God loves us so much that he died for our sins. You know, we don't want to uh, sell that one short. That's the, the, the bigger picture here. But historically speaking, the way at getting at this question is you look at the sign above Jesus' head. The sign they put above his head is that he is the king of the Jews. That's why they thought they were crucifying him. And so even just the sign above his head indicates that Jesus is associated with the future kingdom. People sometimes think, okay, you have all this kingdom theology, and then you have the cross theology. You have atonement, separate field, right? Biblical theology is very intertwined. Right? I know like in systematic theology, we like to, or basic Bible doctrine as well, we like to divide things into categories, right? And I think that's great as a learning device, but he's being crucified, and you've got Rex right there. You've got Basilevs right there. You've got Melech right there. You've got kingdom right in the crucifixion. It's a kingdom crucifixion. They're crucifying him because he's the king. He's claiming to be the king. And so even his crucifixion testifies to his belief in the kingdom. So they crucified, the Romans crucified him because they thought he was claiming to be a king. When Jesus returns, we know that this is when the kingdom actually comes. So let's, let's look at Paul on the kingdom. We have a few verses to look at here. We'll do Paul and Revelation, and then we'll take a break. How does that sound? Are you with me? Yes. All right. There's a lot, okay? But I'm just going to look at a couple of verses. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28 is a, is a major text for that. And then I'm going to look at some of the pastorals. I know that some people debate whether these are written by Paul or not. I'm not going to get into that. 2 Timothy 2... 11 to 13 and 2 Timothy 4 1. And then I'm going to throw a little James in there just for fun. So James 2 5. And then for Revelation, we'll do 2 26 to 27. I don't know if that was what Josiah was referring to before. 5 9 through 10, probably 11, 15 to 18, because it's just so good. And maybe, maybe I'll just like say 19 to 22, like the whole of those chapters. It's got a lot of stuff in it. We're not going to read all those chapters, okay, at the end. But the, now again, there are many other references to the kingdom in the New Testament, apart from what we were looking at in this lecture. But I'm just trying to focus on one aspect of the kingdom, the verses that talk about the coming kingdom. Right? So not like preaching the kingdom or anticipating the kingdom by how you live or how it affects whether or not you're going to get into the kingdom. That's all a separate subject that we're going to get to later. So uh, I don't want you to think I'm trying to cover all the kingdom verses in the whole New Testament. I'm just picking certain ones that relate to the coming kingdom. So 1 Corinthians 15, 24 says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So do you think Paul believed in the kingdom? Uh, yeah, big time. Look, he believes in the end, and he believes that in the end, Jesus is going to deliver the kingdom to God, the Father. After Jesus has done what? Done the Daniel chapter 2 thing, where he's like the stone that smashed the statue, right? After he's destroyed every rule and every authority and power, after Jesus has situated the earth, he's going to hand the kingdom over to God. And he's, but in the meantime, he's going to reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. And it says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Jesus is going to come. Jesus is going to reign. Jesus is going to establish authority and get the world back into harmony. And the last of it is to destroy death. 
Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Right? It's, it's, Paul's like, now, obviously God's not in subjection to Christ. That's what Paul's saying here, right? I know it says all things are in subjection, but like when God says he's going to put all things in subjection, God's himself not going to be in subjection. I love that. Because it's just like totally unnecessary, but like really helpful for clarifying the hierarchy of God and Christ and people, right? It is plain, okay, verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. It's even worse in the Greek, for the record. <laughs> this is actually pretty, pretty easy. This shows that Paul believed in the future kingdom, just like Jesus. Paul believed in that future kingdom. He believed that all things were going to be subjected to the Son, and then the Son himself was going to become subjected to the Father. Let's look at the next one, 2 Timothy chapter 2. I love that all of it ties back into glorifying God. Yes. Everything goes back so that God may be all. Right, so that God may be glorified. I love that too. I love that too. It all ties back into glorifying God. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. The saying is, I love this one. It's, it's so short. It's like a, I don't even know what you would call it, like a, a song or a poem, right? It's, it's very rhythmic, right? Uh, this is a trustworthy, say, uh, trustworthy saying. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I don't know what you call that, but it's got a, a rhythm to it, right? Be a great t-shirt, right? Right on the back of the t-shirt or a rap song or something, you know, like, I, I don't know, but it's, it's, it's just a really great little summary of Christianity. And it's not even original to the author, right? The saying is trustworthy. So he's saying, look, this is a saying, and I'm agreeing that this is a trustworthy saying. So this is like a super early Christian saying that was just around, right? And he's like, yeah, this is good. If we died with him, we'll also live with him, right? And that's not talking about you physically dying. That's talking about you dying to yourself, right? It's talking about turning your life over to Christ. If we endure, we will also reign with him. There's the kingdom. You see it? Jesus is going to reign. That's what Messiah means. That's what Son of God means. That's what Son of David means. That's what Messiah means. Jesus is going to reign. There's no question in our mind about that. If we endure, we will also reign with him. That's beautiful. That's really cool. And that's like Daniel 7 at the end where it talks about, it starts talking about the saints, that the saints of the people of the saints of the Most High are going to receive the kingdom as well. Come marching in. Oh, when the saints go marching in. If we are faith, and I, I like the part at the end, it's like, look, if you want to, if you want to ditch out, you know, if you're going to deny him, he's going to deny you. If you're going to be faithless, he's going to remain faithful. <laughs> and then uh, the, the other one, like Second uh, Timothy 4, 1, this is right there in your Bible. It says, I charge you by his appearing in his kingdom. You know, he's, he's charging Timothy here by his appearing in his kingdom. Sounds like he thinks that it's future. Sounds like he thinks that Jesus is yet to appear and that Jesus' kingdom is yet to come. All right, so that's another good future kingdom verse, 2 Timothy 4.1. And then, I know I just said Paul in Revelation, but I, I can't help but slip this little James one in here. And uh, in James 2.5, we read, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? I'm writing a book about the kingdom of God. I've been doing that forever. I've got six chapters done, so that's that's a start. I wrote a chapter about when we went to Africa, Rebecca. Yeah, and uh, you know my my take on it, and uh, you know I'm sure you would you would uh, have a lot more to fill in the details. Of course, I'm sure all the trips blur together for you as well. I talk about seeing the kingdom connect to some of the poorest people in the world changed me, and how this verse in James 2.5 just preached itself. Whereas here, you know, we would feel guilty. Oh, you know, I'm not really, you know, there's so many people that are richer than me or so many people that are poorer than me. And you, you have to like worry about like having 
any kind of prosperity at all. Uh, in Africa, you're just like, look, this is what it says. God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. And they're just like, like yes, <laughs> because it just works. And I love that about our God, that he's not just interested in the fancy hot shots and the people of power and fame and, you know, the, the big fancy Ivy League schools. You know, I mean, he's he's interested in everybody and especially people that are disenfranchised, that are disempowered, but yet have faith. It's not just poverty for the sake of poverty. There's no place in the Bible that says poverty is a virtue. There's no place that says, oh, well, if you, if you want to be righteous, then you have to be poor, right? I mean, there was that incident with Jesus and the rich young ruler, and that was his issue, obviously. But here it says to be rich in faith. You're poor, maybe in material goods, but you're rich in faith, and you're heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. All right, let's look at the Revelation text. Uh, the first one up is chapter 2, uh, Revelation 2.26. The one who conquers and the one who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Do you hear the echo from Psalm 2? We read that earlier, right? Psalm 2, verse 6 says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten, I want to say thee, because it would rhyme, but anyhow, you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This prophecy, this Davidic psalm, prophesies about what God's going to, going to do for his Messiah. How do I know it's talking about his Messiah? Well, you look up at verse 2 here. The kings there set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Messiah, his anointed. And that is actually the word for Messiah there, I believe. So this is a messianic prophecy that God is going to give his Messiah, his son, rulership and his son is going to rule with like a rod of iron in revelation 2:26, it is not god speaking but jesus and jesus says if you overcome and if you keep his deeds until the end you're going to get authority over the nations and you're going to rule them like with a rod of iron right is that what it just said just as i have just as i have right so this is the extension of the messianic destiny to the messianic people Right, where the Messiah says, if you're with me, you're going, just like we read in this uh, 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13, if we endure, we will reign with him. Right? And there's actually a verse, you see there in chapter 2 or chapter 3, I don't know if you see it there, but it's where he says, you can sit in my throne as I have overcome, and I sit in the Father's throne, you can sit with me in my throne. Right? And it's this whole idea of authority and rulership in the age to come. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. This is a key text for a lot of reasons. <laughs> it's one of my favorite verses. Revelation 5, 9 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. Jesus died to ransom us. And I love how global this is in verse 9, right? Every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. That is not even a triplet. That's a quadruplet. Hello. Daniel, watch out. Revelation just, you know, upstaged you there, right? It's not just every language, people, and nation. Now it's every tribe, language, people, and nation, right? Just so that we're absolutely clear that it means everyone, right? Jesus died for everyone. doesn't matter what your background is, what your heritage is. He died for you too, so that you could be part of this grand future, right? You, and he's made us to be a kingdom and priest to our God. One of those prophecies we looked at talked about being a minister or being a priest. I think it was Isaiah 61. That in the, in the age to come, we would be priests to God. And they will reign, and that's the king part, over, or the queen, the earth. It's kinda, I kind of get that same feel from Tim, where it was talking about, 
Yeah, I forget what we were talking about it yesterday. It said created Jerusalem to be a city. Yeah. Um, and create it for rejoicing. Yeah, it says here you have made them to be a kingdom. Where you're talking about is yeah. creating something new, but giving it a new purpose. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Revelation chapter 11. We'll have to. I think conclude here because we're out of time for this segment here. But Revelation eleven fifteen says, this is where Jesus comes back. I mean, Jesus comes back a couple of times in the book of Revelation. <laughs> he comes back again in chapter 19. But uh, in Re Revelation is not entirely, you know, just one thing after another chronological, obviously. But Revelation eleven fifteen says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Famous part of Hanel's Messiah, if you ever uh, are familiar with that piece. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your power and begun to reign. So there's a very real sense in which God is not yet reigning over the world today. And that when Jesus comes, when that seventh angel blew his trumpet, then the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of God and his Christ. The kingdom of the Lord and his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. You never heard that song? Okay. It's a great part of it, right? And he takes his power and he begins to reign. Other mentions of the future kingdom we find scattered throughout chapter 19, 20, 21 and 22. Not that all of those chapters only refer to the future coming kingdom. There are parts that don't, obviously, but we don't have time to look at that. So I'm just going to leave it as 19 to 22 up on the board. And next time we'll look at the sleep of the dead. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Next time in this kingdom of God class, we'll look at the doctrine of conditional immortality before, before looking at the kingdom of gospel passages, and then looking at the kingdom way. So stay tuned for that next time. Before wrapping up, just want, I just wanted to read out a quick review that we received in iTunes for Restitutio. comes from Matt Likix. I don't know if I said that correctly, but he says, Love the work Sean is doing for the kingdom of God. After I decided to read my Bible from start to finish... I began to realize so much of what I've been taught by other people about the Bible was an error. I have since been on a journey to discover authentic Christianity the way Jesus and the apostles would have understood it. This podcast and Sean's work have been instrumental in that. Well, thanks so much, Matt, for that review. And if you, dear listener, haven't yet reviewed us, please do so. It helps others find the show. You can do that through iTunes. Also, also... Since I got back from the theological conference uh, two weekends ago, I've acquired the audio for a number of the faith journey testimonies that people gave. And although I couldn't use all the audio because a number of the recordings were very low quality due to using a room microphone, I did get a number of high quality ones as well. And I'm very excited to announce that I'm going to be playing those out on Sunday. And rather than stitching them all together in one podcast episode, I've decided instead to release them as independent episodes. So on Sunday on your feed, don't worry that you receive six downloads or however many from Rest Studio. They're short. Each one is probably five, 10, maybe 15 minutes long. And they are excellent testimonies about what God is doing in our time with reference to bringing people along to see some of these exciting truths from the scripture that for a long time have lain dormant, at least among mainstream Christianity. So check that out, and hopefully those will be very encouraging to you as they are to me as well. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.